Well, we're in the book of Exodus, as I mentioned in my prayer. And the story found in the book of Exodus is one of progression. It's one of progression. There is that obvious geographic progression as God's people are moved out of Egypt and through the Red Sea to the other side of the Red Sea and now eventually on their way toward the promised land, even if through a long and windy path. But there is also a thematic progression in the book of Exodus. And a series of S words will help us keep track of that progression. The story starts out, as you know, under the theme of slavery. The Israelites are enslaved under Pharaoh, in bitter service to Pharaoh. But then God sees. He sees, he hears, he responds, and he's about to step in. And so he declares his intentions to save his people, and really to save them on account of sonship. Chapter 4, verse 22 and 23, there it's a key passage. God says, Israel is my son, and Pharaoh is to let them go so that they may serve me. Well, over the course of the ten plagues and the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, God's salvation is accomplished. And that salvation, as we saw last week in chapter 15, results in song. God's people sing. They celebrate God's salvation. So feel the, the progressive themes building up. Slavery, sonship, salvation, song. In weeks to come, we're going to see that God speaks in a unique and special way on top of Mount Sinai. But before that happens, there is a bit of regression. Or we could say the progress is stymied, if you want to keep the S's going. It's short-circuited because of Israel's sin. And with Mother's Day on our mind today, let me acknowledge that those themes of progression and regression might feel pretty familiar to a mom who's been at it even just a few years now. Our kids grow, they get bigger, they go through stages. And some stages are enjoyable and sweet and easy and happy and warm. And other stages are more difficult, more, more sinful, more trying. In fact, some scholars have used those typical stages of life as a metaphor for the stages of Israel's growth as a nation. For instance, one could say that that Exodus night when they left Egypt, there as a nation they were born. That was their birth, you could say. But not long after in the text of Exodus, we're in something like the stage of the terrible twos. Or in our household, it was the terrible threes. Uh, we didn't have terrible twos. We, we had terrible threes. Uh, however it was in your home, and whatever age it fell, you know that era of toddler complaining and whining and tantrums. And that's what we see 
in our passage for today. In fact, we saw a little bit of it last week at the end of chapter 15, verses 22 to 27 of that chapter. That's actually one of three stories that could really be under the the banner or the heading of grumbling in the desert. Three stories which stretch to chapter 17, verse 7. And so today we'll back up just a bit to consider all three of those together since they're so similar. In fact, because they're so similar, what I want to do is just a a first, a a quick drive-by or an overview of the three stories. And then we'll talk about four shared lessons that we can glean from them as the majority of our study today. So three similar scenes. Notice we've got three locations and three similar problems or three perceived problems. There's no water in Mara. That's the end of chapter 15. There's no food somewhere in the middle of nowhere, a place where there isn't exactly a name. And then in chapter 17, there's no water at Massa. In each of those cases, Israel responds to the perceived problem with grumbling, complaining. And in each case, God responds to their grumbling and complaining with provision, with grace. It's amazing. Let's read a bit of it. Let's read the end of chapter 15, starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Let's read the first half of chapter 16. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which, by the way, is just called Sin. It's like short for Sinai. It's near Sinai. It's not the wilderness of sin because everyone sins there. just wanted to clarify that because it's not in my notes. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion for every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know the Lord, that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. 
And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that your grumbling is against us? And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Now we'll stop there in chapter 16 for now. We'll read the rest later on. But let's read the beginning of chapter 17 so we can capture all three scenes. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord encamped at Raphadim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa in Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Three similar scenes with a lot of shared features, you can tell. There's that perceived problem of the lack of provision, which gives way to their grumbling, but God's grace gives way to amazing and abundant provision. Now let me offer four lessons from these three scenes. Four shared lessons, which I think are both found within our text, but are also enormously relevant for all of us today. And the first is the reality of trials. The reality of trials. Now one might be tempted to think that on the heels of such glorious victory and salvation and song that things might just continue to go from good to great for the Israelites on their way to the promised land. I mean, God had wrought their salvation in glorious and majestic ways. 
They had seen the waters part and stand up like walls as they walked through on dry land. They had seen and heard the Egyptian army be crushed under the water that returned to its place. They had been following fire at night and a cloud by day, signs of God's presence with his people and the leadership of his people. And so they rightly celebrated with song in chapter 15. I mean, hopefully you could picture it. Moses writes a song. Miriam, his sister, picks up the tambourine. She passes out the tambourines to the ladies. The dancing begins. The singing is antiphonal. It's loud. It's celebratory. And then someone says, oh, wait, oh, wait, hold up. The cloud's moving, guys. The cloud's moving. God's heading out. Well, yeah, let's go. Let's go. And so it goes. Day one. Day two. Day three. No water. It almost seems harder that there is water in Mara. Someone says, oh, oh, here, guys, I found a watering hole here in Mara. And he takes some water, and it's bitter. It's undrinkable. This is a real trial, and one they probably wouldn't have seen coming. And trials often take us by surprise, too. Some of us think that when things are going good, well, God is just sort of like this, where he doesn't let you have too much good for too long. The trial's right around the corner. And others of us think things are going pretty good. In fact, things are going pretty good with me and God. I'm walking with him. And for you, you might be shocked when you encounter a trial under good days and under godly days. You might think that you know, it makes sense for God to get our attention when we've been wayward. But if we haven't been wayward, and in fact, been Godward, and trials come, it might feel like an unfair punch in the gut. Most of us, I think even Christians, have a pretty meritorious view of trials. Most of us, I think, tend to think, even if we won't say it out loud to our community group, that you get what you get because, you know, you get what you deserve. And, you know, you do good, you get good. You work hard, you, you, you make much. You, you, you make trouble, you're going to get trouble. Of course, there is some truth to that. We do reap what we sow. But that's far from the whole truth. And for one, that leaves out the reality that we live in a fallen world. We live in the world of thorns and thistles, and those thorns and thistles are not respecters of the righteous and the unrighteous. This side of the fall, this whole world is trembling and groaning and quaking. It's under a curse. In this world, there is trouble. There is pain. There is death. There is hunger. There is threat. Metaphorically speaking... It's a desert out there. It's a desert in our lives. But not only is it because it's a fallen world, 
but we feel desert-like and life is hard sometimes because God is leading us through those specific circumstances. It's because of God's sovereignty in and through these trials of life that we should, well, not think it's merely you get what you get based on what you do. You see, Israel was coming off their high. They had left their camp meeting. They had a a camp meeting experience with God, you know, that day on the plains with the tambourines in hand. But then they were led through the desert for three days without water. They were led to the bitter waters of Mara. They were led out from the lush refreshment of Elam into more wilderness without food. And then they were led out by God to camp at Raphidim, a place without any water there. And so as for us, God may be leading us through hard days. He may not lead us exactly the same way with this miraculous cloud and fire, but he's no less sovereign, no less involved, no less leading, and no less purposeful. If life is like a play, then the author of the script is no less active in our play than theirs in the story of Exodus. By the way, that's not to minimize the pain of trials. We're talking about the reality of trials this morning. Trouble and pain are not figments of our imagination. And we don't experience bad things only when we think bad thoughts or, or are negative in our thinking. No, deserts are hot and dangerous. And potentially deadly. And that's not the final word about this rough and tumble world. But we will never get to a better word word about trials until we fully embrace the reality of trials. And the true difficulty of trials. And the the frequency of trials. and, And even the surprising timing of trials. To use the language of 1 Peter, don't be surprised by fiery trials which come upon you for the testing of your faith. There's that word again, testing. Did you notice that word was in our passage in Exodus twice? In chapter 15, verse 25, there he tested them. And in chapter 16, verse 4, that I may test them. So let's ponder this testing at this point because we don't want to get this wrong and it's easy to get wrong. You might think, and you'd be wrong, that God testing us means that he tempts us to sin. But the Bible makes clear. James 1 says, God doesn't tempt anyone. When you're tempted, you can't say, I'm tempted from God. But neither is it that God doesn't really know your heart. And so he needs to provide a test to see what's going on. He's not like the teacher who doesn't know whether you've studied for the final this week. And so they have to give you the final to find out whether you have studied for the final. No, God knows our hearts better than we do. So here's what testing is and what it's for. It's for us. God's testing is for us. He tests us to show us 
what's in our hearts. Hard circumstances don't inject into our hearts either bad or good things. They simply expose or pull out what's already there. And when our bad is exposed by trials, the purpose of it is not so that God, you know, he delights to just give Fs. I had a professor like that in college. He said, the average of this class will not be above 52%. I can guarantee that. What a creep. (laughs) God is not like that. But God, as a loving father, is interested to show us our own heart so that we might know what's going on inside our hearts, that we might hate the sin that comes out even more than we used to, and that we might learn to lean into him for forgiveness and help. He actually tests us in the end so that we sin less, not more. This is in Exodus 20, verse 20. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. God tests for our good. At any given time, we might think we're just fine. We might think we've, we've just come off that camp meeting moment. We've just, you know, we've... we've Got a new sense of God's grace and salvation. We have a deeper acquaintance with communion in him. And then only a day or two or three days later, in a certain combination of circumstances, a certain kind of trial comes into our lives. And God shows us something that was there all along, but we thought it wasn't. Which leads to our second lesson the absurdity of grumbling the absurdity of grumbling Israel's response to this very real trial of no water no food and then again no water should be both very familiar to us and absurd to us they grumbled they complained that's something I think we're all familiar with Personally so. Let's not kid ourselves. And let's fully acknowledge that it is fairly culturally acceptable, this thing of complaining or grumbling. Even in the church. There are churches that are loaded with complaints and grumblers. By God's grace, not this church. But those who think they stand take heed lest they fall. Let's guard that. And of course, in the broader world, well, complaining is an art form to be mastered. There are comedians whose whole shtick and persona is just bitter complaint. You go on Twitter or Facebook or the comments section of anything on the web, and it's just dripping with sarcastic, biting complaint. It's common, but it is absurd. It's absurd. And if you need help seeing its absurdity, well, take a good look at the expose of grumbling shown to us in these three scenes. It's absurd by way of 
their forgetfulness and their fickleness. They're both forgetful here and fickle. Again, it wasn't long ago that God had had brought those plagues upon Egypt within their own land, in their own presence. It was not long ago at all that they faced that fateful night when God passed over the homes who believed in the Lord, but not those who didn't, striking down the firstborn sons. It was only just a few days ago that they passed through the Red Sea. It's only just a few days ago that the Egyptian army no longer existed. The threat of 430 years? Done. That was three days ago. It was just three days ago that they had out the tambourines. And then poof, spiritual amnesia. Psalm 106 comments on it like this. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. Three days in the desert without any water is no little thing. It's it's almost deadly. But it is no big thing for this big God. He displayed his power over water multiple times, turning the Nile into blood and then clean again, parting the Red Sea. And now no lack of water would be a problem for this God, who's the God of all creation. So what God's people should have done in this very real trial is call out to him. That's what Moses did in verse 25 of chapter 15. He cried out to the Lord, but instead They grumbled against Moses. What are we supposed to drink, they said. Or look in chapter 16, verse 2 and 3. And here's what I did in my Bible. Maybe you want to do the same. I I put exclamation points after each phrase that was just shocking. The whole congregation, exclamation point, of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Everybody. Verse 3, the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died. (laughs) Died? This whole thing is a salvation rescue. And and that we had died by the hand of the Lord. Oh, that God had killed us back in Egypt. In Egypt? He was getting you out of Egypt, you idiots. When we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. Oh, here's the good old days on steroids, right? Yeah, they had food. Pharaoh was very interested in them having nutrients for slavery. And you sat by the meat pots. You ate bread to the full. You got up the next day and were whipped. They say, for you, you Moses, you have brought us into this wilderness. Have you forgotten about the cloud? It's right there. The the fire last night, didn't you see it? God is leading them out. You, Moses, have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. I mean, it's just insane. You can see here how grumbling is so not objective. It is so skewing 
in our thinking. It, it distorts reality. It's so misguided and so misplaced. Now, obviously, this grumbling here is not at all the biblical and godly kind of groaning or lament that we find in places like the Psalms. A lot of the Psalms have groaning, lament, and it's held out to us as an example to bring our problems to God like this. There's a holy kind of complaint in the Bible that honestly expresses grief to God. But that's not this week, that's not this passage in Exodus, it's something different. Think of the, that there's holy groaning and then there's heated grumbling. And our passage is clearly the latter. You can feel the heat coming off of verses 2 and 3. Think about how deceptive grumbling is. We know that because we can see how absurd and ugly and, and unreasonable it is when we see others do it. Not when we do it. When we hear others complain... We say, you know what I hate? Complainers. And then we just go off on complainers. Oh, those people with bad attitudes. Of course, ironically, not realizing that we are complaining. We've got a bad attitude about bad attituders. We don't even call it grumbling when we're doing it. We don't call it complaining or whining. We call it, when we're doing it, we're just venting. We're just being honest. We're just getting something off our chest. Or I'm just telling it the way it is. But when we grumble, we might think that it's those stupid people in this stupid situation and those bad drivers and in this slow sales clerk and that annoying child. Now, there are a, a lot of annoying children. There are a lot of slow sales clerks. There are some really, really bad drivers. But there is also a sovereign God behind it all. And I confess, I too often forget that. And so we must take to heart Moses' redirection of their misguided grumbling you remember how they complained to Moses and Aaron? They, they blame Moses and Aaron. Well, see, verse 7, your grumbling is against the Lord. Or verse 8, your grumbling, that you grumble against him? What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Indeed, God has brought them to these locations. God has brought them into these circumstances. And the same is true for us. The same is true for your Monday. The same is true for this next week and for the next year. We sing, my father planned it all. I sing through the rain and the sunshine. I'll trust him whatever befall. I find that it's easy to sing that here. And not so much when someone cuts me off or simply makes my day inconvenient. And may we take heed because apparently in this passage we're shown that grumbling can be a downward spiral. It's not just persistent over these three scenes, it's progressively worse in these three scenes. 
I leave you to, to discover that for yourself. There are about four indications how it goes from bad to worse to worst in these three scenes. But just the last line of verse 7 of chapter 17 tells you, is the Lord among us or not? Tuck this away. Complaining breeds complaining and more complaining. And it seems to gather other complainers who encourage complaining. It snowballs. Well, let's be instructed by the absurdity of grumbling, especially in light of what follows in each scene. Thirdly, the kindness of God's provision. The kindness of God's provision. In the first scene at the end of chapter 15, how did God respond to their grumbling? He had Moses throw a log into bitter water. And it made the water not only drinkable, but sweet. Chapter 15, verse 25. By the way, don't go looking for some sort of natural explanation for this like maybe this was a log with some copper-like properties that would draw the minerals from the don't bother God did this that's all you need to know that's all the passage means to communicate God can use copper like wood if he wants to but he doesn't need to the point is God is doing this and God is gracious he's even gracious to lead them to Elam verse 27, where there are 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Whether those are literal numbers or not, they surely represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 70 elders that will be appointed in due course. So this is a foreshadow of the promised land, I would say. This is that God's people, all of them, are going to be protected and provided for abundantly. That's what's coming in the promised land, and this little respite in Elam is just a foretaste of what's to come. In the second scene, again, lack of food, again grumbling, and once again God provided, this time food from the sky, daily food, abundant food, both meat and bread which makes a burger, which is the best kind of food there is, if they wanted to. Because in the morning, they go out and they'll find bread from heaven called manna. And in the evening, they will find quail. Again, don't bother with a naturalistic explanation for these. The point is God had done it. God provided daily, abundantly, graciously. And undeservedly. And in the third scene of chapter 17, once again, no water. Once again, they complain. And once again, God provides miraculously and abundantly. Moses, take your staff. You know that staff that was put into the Nile and it turned to blood? And you know that staff that was put over the Red Sea and it parted? Well, tap a rock and water will come out. How gracious is our God. How undeserved is his provision. None of us would have responded like this. After all that he did and all that he's shown and all that he said. And as far as they had come to now complain in disbelief. 
Not once, not twice, but a third time. Each time heightening the intensity and the unbelief and the wickedness and the rebellion. Calling into question whether God is with them. How gracious is this God? And how gracious is our God? How gracious is his provision to us? He doesn't promise that we'll all be rich. He doesn't promise that life will all be easy. He doesn't promise that we'll all have the same amount, but he does promise us what we need. He doesn't always provide in miraculous ways, like raining birds or, you know, wonder bread that appears on the ground. I like to think of it as angel food cake myself, but (laughs) God usually doesn't provide for us those ways. But if you're alive here today, he has brought you thus far. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. That's what God gave them in the wilderness, daily bread. That's what God gives us, even though it doesn't feel like it's merely daily bread. What I mean is, most of us don't feel the need to pray for daily bread because we've got enough bread for today and tomorrow and the next. Most of us have a pantry full of food. Most of us have bread and cheese that goes bad before we get to the end of it. Most of us have savings put aside. Most of us have a relatively steady paycheck. But whatever you have, it is daily bread from God. Remember, Job told us, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Just ask Job how quickly everything can be gone. Doesn't Proverbs tell us, money tends to sprout wings and fly away. Sure, it's good to save for the future. Of course, there's nothing wrong with multiple cans of soup in your pantry if God would provide that. But if you're trusting in your savings or your well-stocked shelves, it's all a mirage. It is. It's a mirage. It might go poof. All of us, whether rich or poor or somewhere in between, we are daily dependent on God. Fourth, consider the grandeur of God's greater purposes. The grandeur of God's greater purposes. What were his purposes in all of this? Bringing them to the brink of dehydration and starvation. Allowing them to grumble. Then provide miraculously. One purpose we've already talked about. Testing. God was showing them what's in their hearts that they might turn from it. And certainly another purpose is for him to further establish trust. God was teaching his people about trusting him through these moments. With the daily bread, they were to gather as much as they wanted, as much as they thought they needed every single morning. But anything they didn't eat that day went bad that night. In fact, we haven't read that yet, so... Look at chapter 16, verse 16. We'll read a little bit there. This is what the Lord has commanded. 
Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat, you shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less, but when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some left part of it till morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. You see, there's no stashing for the next day. This is daily bread, literally, and no possibility of anything else. And there were also special instructions for the sixth and seventh day because of the Sabbath, which was a day of rest. So look at verse 22 now. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a day holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. You see how God was in multiple ways teaching his people to trust and obey. Trust and obey in all this. God was showing himself to them. He was pointing, him, pointing them to himself, you could say. God was directing their hearts to him in worship. You see in verse 6 of chapter 16, Then you will know that it was the Lord. You will see my glory in the manna on the ground. Or verse 12 of the same chapter, When you eat the meat and you eat the bread, Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. God had grand purposes for all of these circumstances. Those of plenty and those with nothing. And again, the same is true in our lives. We know it not because God is actively speaking from up above in a cloud, but because he has revealed so in his word. He's not only revealed times when he's done it long ago, but promised to do it for us as Christians today. The word tells us that he provides and that we can trust him. And that word really tells a story that goes far beyond the days of Exodus. And that's good because we need more than the Exodus. We need more than the wilderness. We really need more than manna from heaven and quail from the sky and water from the rock. We need something more than our best efforts to stop complaining. 
I suspect most of us in this room right now, because of the passage, we have a fresh aversion to complaining and grumbling and a renewed desire for contentment and thankfulness and joy. And I suspect that every one of those same people are not entirely hopeful about a complete and forever change in their lives. I expect that most of us have both a fresh resolve to stop complaining and a twinge of nervousness that this might not last three months or three weeks or three days. So what hope is there for critical, complaining, whining people like me? Because I, for one, feel tested by our passage in Exodus. And I feel exposed and humbled. And it's about then that I remember of another testing in another wilderness over a millennia later. When Jesus was hungry in the wilderness in Matthew 4, he didn't complain. Neither did he take the riches of the world that were offered by Satan. No, he was tested more hardcore than Israel ever was. And he passed with perfect flying colors. Perfection. He is our perfection. More than that, he is our provision. And so as we close, look, look at John 6 with me. John 6, would you turn there? Because there Jesus talks about and builds upon our passage in Exodus. And if we don't know about this, then we don't, we don't really get hope from Exodus. John 6, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. In verse 32, look in the middle. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Skip to verse 41. You can read the longer version at lunch today. So the Jews grumbled. Ah, oh, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Let's skip to verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In allusion to the cross. Jesus came down as the bread of life. The bread of heaven. The true bread of God. Torn on that cross for our sins not least 
the sins of grumbling. Jesus can save grumblers. Isn't that amazing? Jesus can save you. Believe it to be true. Ask him to save you today. He is your perfection. He is perfect provision. He is even satisfaction. Because in John 7, Jesus stood up at the temple one day and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That was at the end of the Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths was the celebration of God's provision of, uh, in the wilderness. Jesus says at the end of that feast, I'm the living water. Come to me. You'll never thirst again. We need more than physical provision. We need more than just trying harder. We need Jesus. We need someone who was tested in our place. We need someone who provides us to the full what we need for our souls, not just our bellies. We need water that quenches deep down at a heart level. In fact, doesn't just quench, but turns us into springs of water. That's what we find in Jesus and his spirit. And it's right about there that we can begin to find some traction towards contentment. It's about there that we can find some, some battery, some energy. And that's important because it's not like contentment goes out the window in the New Testament. The gospel is not merely, yeah, you can't stop grumbling, but Jesus never grumbled once and he's your only hope. It's that plus and he's making all things new. He's changing us from the inside out. He put within us living water that flows out to bless others. And so Paul in Philippians 2 can expect Christians to stand out in this dark, complaining, griping world as lights. Here it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Just think, the Christians might actually stand out in this complaining, dark world if we complained just a little less. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we need your help. Help to believe and to trust what you say and what you've done. Oh, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you are for us, all that you have done. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have moved beyond mere physical provision, important as that is, to address literally the heart of the matter, our hearts. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for satisfaction. And we pray, Lord, for your help to have some traction in our lives as Christians toward contentment and thankfulness and joy. Keep us from grumbling. Keep us all the more, Lord, from unbelief. Help us for your namesake.
It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.